We're going to be in the book of Matthew today. Uh, Matthew chapter 1. So if you have a copy of God's Word, let me encourage you to find your place there. Let me encourage you to bring God, a copy of God's Word with you, whether it be print or digital. This is nothing more important that we can do than to look into the Word of God. And so um, we ask that, uh, you know, that I encourage you to bring a copy of Scriptures with you um, to church. And as we look into the Word of God, that God would speak to us here um, through His Word. Uh, <clears throat> a little girl came home from Sunday school triumphantly waving a paper. She said, Mommy, Mommy, my teacher said I, 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 I drew the most unusual picture of Christmas that she's ever seen. Her mother took hold of the picture and studied it for a moment and concluded that it was a very peculiar drawing. Maybe the most peculiar drawing that she'd ever seen. She said, honey, this is a wonderful picture, but, but why have you made all these people sitting in the back of the airplane? And, and the girl, a little bit exasperated, said, well, it's the flight into Egypt. Obviously disappointed, uh, disappointed that it, her picture was not obvious to her mother. Oh, the mother replied cautiously. Well, who's this man, this mean-looking man I'm sitting in the front of the plane? Ugh. She sighed. That's Pontius the pilot, becoming visibly upset with her mother. Ah, I see. And here you have Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus. And studying the picture carefully and someone encouraged her to ask, she said, well, who, who's, this, who's this fat man sitting behind Mary? And the girl just, it was too much. She sighed. Can't you tell? That's round John Virgin. Oh, we may laugh at that story, um, but that girl's uh, mixed-up perspective on Christmas is not really much, may not be much less muddled than many of our perspectives on Christmas. We have so many hopes and expectations this time of year, and after the year that we've had this year in 2020, even Christmas feels a little bit different um, this year. And so this morning and next week, Lord willing, I'd like for us to ponder and think about the coming and the birth of Jesus Christ. The coming and the birth of Jesus Christ. One of my favorite names that the scriptures give to Jesus is Emmanuel. God with us. And, and so as we, um, you know, we think about all the things that we've experienced in 2020. Um, social distancing. Working from home. Uh, worshiping and shopping online. Um, we need to know that God is still with us. And so Matthew chapter 1 is our text for today. Again, I hope you have a copy of God's Word. Uh, we're going to look at the first 17 verses. Maybe the most neglected verses when it comes to the Christmas story. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. It's the genealogy of Jesus. So we're going to read a bunch of begats. But I hope that as we look at this list of names, that we would not feel... Um, boredom, but we'd feel the hope that comes to us through the genealogy of Jesus. And so this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, 
Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. Josiah, the father of Jeconiah. Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. And after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abahud. Abahud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Etzor. Etzor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eliezer. Eliezer, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph the husband of Mary, <clears throat> and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called Messiah. <clears throat> and thus there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Oh boy, <clears throat> I did not expect that. <clears throat> Today, <clears throat> Emmanuel, God coming to us, and next week, <clears throat> I want to look at Emmanuel, God with us. The first 17 verses detail for us what God was doing in giving to us his son. <clears throat> God coming to us, what does that mean? In coming to us, let me share four thoughts with you this morning. In coming to us, number one, Jesus came to us in history. Jesus came to us in history. And think about some of the best-known stories that we read. They begin with four words, right? Once. Once upon a time. And those four words, they kind of clue us in that, that, this is a, that this is a fairy tale, that this is a make-believe story. Or if, if we're not, what we're going to about to tell, we're not really sure if it happened or not. But that's not how Matthew begins the greatest story ever. He begins his gospel with, he anchors the gospel in history. He, literally, we read this, the book, the Biblos, of the genealogy, the genesis, the origin of Jesus Christ. In Hebrew, that would be Yeshua Mashiach. Yeshua, Mashiach, Jehovah, Yeshua, Jehovah saves, Mashiach, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew begins this account of the coming of Jesus, not as a fairy tale, not as a fable, not as some fictional reading, fantasy reading. No, this is history. Jesus, the coming of Christ, is rooted in history, that there was a point in time 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ left heaven and he came to an earth, that song that we just sang, he was born in Bethlehem. This isn't a make-believe character, he's real. This all happened, Jesus came and he came to us. The subject of history, the actor of history, the main character of history is not you and me, it's Jesus, God coming 
uh, to us. And notice what Matthew tells us about Jesus. He tells us, first of all, that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the son of David, and he is the son of Abraham. Now think about those, those two uh, descriptors there, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Matthew was the human author of this first book of the New Testament. And Matthew, in his writing, his audience were, uh, was the Jewish uh, people. And he wrote to the Jews, and for the Jews, everything they believed hinged on the two covenants that God made with Abraham and the covenant that God made with David. And Matthew begins, and he says that Jesus the Messiah is the son of David. Now, the Davidic covenant promised that the one who would come would sit on the throne of David forever, that he would be an eternal, everlasting king we know the, the Davidic covenant there in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, where God said to David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And so when we think of this baby that was born in Bethlehem, laid in a manger, we can say that this baby who was born, who came to us, came to be the sovereign king over all. Jesus came to rule. Now think about kings and kingdoms. They have a beginning, they rise, they ascend to power. Oftentimes kingdoms come to an end. And we see that here in, uh, in this genealogy here. Verses 2 through 6, we have the origin of David's house. And basically verses 2 through 6 take us through the books of Genesis all the way through the book of Ruth. So if you're kind of marking your Bibles, you may just kind of, that just kind of gives us a historical reference. Verses 7 through 11, we have the rise, the fall of David's house. Really, those verses 7 through 11 cover uh, books of 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, and 1 and 2 Chronicles. And then we have the descent into obscurity of the house of David, verses 12 through 16. Most of these names here in the last third, we don't know who they are. Historians have surveyed world history, <clears throat> who have surveyed her world history, have identified 21 great civilizations who all endured for a time, but are no longer here today. Babylon was mighty. Today she's gone. Greece and Rome once were, but are no more. Today, the, the, the nations that dominate the news, United States, Russia, China, right, will not last forever. There's only one king and one kingdom that will be everlasting, and his name is Jesus. And so Matthew introduces to us, and he says, this one that I'm writing about is the king who was promised to come, and his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Not only is Jesus the one who, was, who came, the son of David, but he's also the son of Abraham. And the second covenant that we have spent so much time looking at this fall as we journey through the Abraham narrative in the book of Genesis reminds us that through Abraham's descendant, one would come through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. We saw that covenant repeated a number of times in Genesis 12 through 25 that we looked at this fall. The last time that covenant was reiterated was in Genesis chapter 22 when uh, Abraham went up to Mount Moriah to offer up Isaac as his son. You remember that story a couple weeks back? And there 
um, in obedience to God's call on his life, God saved the hand of execution and provided that substitute ram. And so there on this mountain of substitute sacrifice, God reiterated his covenant to Abraham. Genesis chapter 2, verse 28, or Genesis 22, verse 18. Through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so what Matthew is signifying in these opening, ver- opening words of his gospel, Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, he's just pointing to the fact that everything that the Jews had hoped in and looked forward to were being fulfilled in this one person, Jesus Christ. I love that line. I tell you every year, that line from the old little town of Bethlehem, all the hopes and fears are met in thee tonight. That is what Matthew is saying here when he speaks and he writes about this one who was uh, uh, born and one who had come to us as an infant. And so when we think about the coming of Jesus Christ in history, what we have to say is this, that the coming of Christ is good news. The good news of Jesus Christ is that he came. Matthew doesn't begin his gospel giving to us advice, good advice, He does give us instruction, teaching of the Lord, but he begins with good news. You say, what's the difference? Well, think about the difference between good news and good advice. Good advice tells us there's something that we should do. We should do it immediately. Good news tells us that something has been done. Good news, uh, good advice tells us we need to act. Good news reports that something has already happened. Advice um, tells us that may, urges us to make something happen. Uh, good, good news urges us to recognize that something has already happened and we are to respond to it. Uh, Timothy Keller helps us to understand the difference with this illustration. He says, Let's say there's an invading army that's coming to invade your town. What the town needs is military advisors, they need advice. Someone should explain to the town that the earthworks and the trenches need to be built over here, that the marksman needs to go up here, the tank should be positioned over here. However, Keller writes, if a great king has intercepted and defeated the invading army, what does the town need then? It doesn't need military advisors, it needs messengers. And the Greek word for messengers is angelos, angels. The messengers do not say, here's what you have to do. They say, they rather say, I bring you good tidings of great joy. In other words, stop fleeing. Stop building your fortifications. Stop trying to save yourself. The king has already saved you. Something has been done and it changes everything. Matthew begins his gospel with the announcement that the Christ has come. I think back over to, I think over to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter uh, 2. What did the angels announce that night to the shepherds in the hillside? Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. But the angel said to the shepherds, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy um, for all the people for today in the city of David. A Savior has been born for you. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord. 
And so when we stop and we read these opening words of Matthew's gospel about the coming of Christ, we have to recognize that, that these words are just not, uh, just not a genealogy, a list of names, a boring... No, this is an announcement that the best news ever has happened. The Savior of the world has come. Which brings us to the second thought that I want to leave us, leave us with, and that is in coming to us, Jesus came for sinners. In coming to us, Jesus came for sinners. We see this actually in the names that are listed here for us in this genealogy. <clears throat> you think about 2020. Man, we have been deluged with information regarding the coronavirus, have we not? And every time we turn on the news, we're getting more news. And many times, and it seems like the news that we just received is different than the news that we received yesterday. And we don't know what is right or what is wrong. We don't know what to believe. And, and, and we're just confused as it can come about, as we can regarding this, what's happening to us. Scientists, they warn us about the positivity rate. Here in Texas, the, the, I think it's the state of Texas, maybe nationwide, I don't know. I, I've stopped listening to the... I can't keep up with the news. Uh, the positivity rate in the state of Texas is a 15% positivity rate. And what that means is that when on a day-to-day -day basis, I think over seven days, if that positivity rate exceeds 15%, then the governor has the authorization to begin to enact shutdowns across the state. The rate of mortality measures uh, the rate of those who die from the COVID virus. Those are important numbers. But here's a, an important rate that affects all of us. The positivity rate for sin is 100%. And so let me say it this way. If you're a human, right, you've been infected. Now you have it. And the rate of mortality from sin is 100%. One in one die from sin. And so this week, when I was reading through the genealogy and just asking the Lord, Lord, what are you saying in these words? What is it that you want us to, to, to know and understand about the coming of Jesus? The thought struck me as I read this list of names a number of different times. The stark reality of this list is that no one lives forever. And so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so was the father of so-and-so. And when we read this genealogy of Jesus, this family tree, we realize that, that Jesus came to, and he came for people who are flawed and who are failures and who are forgotten. We could take a look at these names and and unpack and go back to the Old Testament and uncover their history and, and read about all the things that have happened and, <clears throat> and what they did and didn't do. But here's the point. Whether one was faithful, and there's some here on this list who are faithful, or whether one was a failure, we might say whether one was a, a complete misfit, and there's many on this list. Or if they were forgotten, you think of that last third, verses 12 through 16. Most of those names we know nothing about. Their historical records have been hidden from us, but they're known by God. Every one of these names mentioned in this list were flawed in one way or another, except for the last. 
They were flawed in one way or another. He said, why would Matthew include this in his list on the family tree of Jesus? And someone described family like this. Mostly sweet with a few nuts. Or, I, hold on, I missed the punchline. <laughs> uh, someone described family um, uh, as fudge. <laughs> Mostly sweet with a few nuts, right? Uh, what do we do with the nuts in our family, right? We hide them, we avoid them, we distance them. Well, they're, they're from the other side of the family, right? I mean, we don't want anything to do with those people, right? And that's how we describe our family sometimes. I once read about a, a, a prominent family having commissioned a professional biographer to write about their family tree. And they gave to him the very specific instructions and cautioned him to be careful when he came to their Uncle George. Uncle George, in a drunken stupor, had murdered somebody and was subsequently sent to the electric chair. And so the biographer assured the family that he would be able to handle this matter with delicate tact. And so this is what he wrote in the biography. Uncle George occupied a chair of applied electronics at an important government institution. He was attached to his position by the strongest of ties, and his death came as a real shock. (laughs) The Holy Spirit doesn't hide, and he doesn't skip over, and he doesn't cover up the flawed nature of the family tree. Let me just bring your attention to the four of the mothers that are listed in the family tree, and I'm I point out the four mothers, not that in any way implying or suggesting in any way that women are more flawed than men. That is not what I'm saying. It's just, they just stand out, all right? And we could take a look at the men, and, and they're all there too, but let me just highlight the four. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. In the ancient patriarchal society, women were not typically included in genealogies. They were considered to be gender outsiders in those cultures. And yet they're included in the genealogy of Jesus. Three of the women of those four were Gentiles. Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. And in a Jewish world, they were considered racial outsiders. And you think of their moral record. Tamar, Genesis chapter 38 had an incestuous relationship with her father-in-law Judah and bore him twins. Rahab, the book of Joshua, uh, chapter seven, was a prostitute from, uh, chapter six, was a prostitute from Jericho who hid the spies before the nation of Israel would march around the city and the walls would fall in. Bathsheba, 2 Samuel chapter 11, had an adulterous relationship with King David And if we were using labels, and if we were to apply labels to just these three ladies in this genealogy, and we could apply this to the men as well, is that they were moral outsiders. They were failures and misfits. And why would Matthew include people like this in the genealogy of Jesus? Again, I so appreciate the writing what Timothy Keller wrote in his book, Hidden Christmas. There is no one then, not even the greatest king, or or not the greatest king, the greatest human being who does not need the grace of Jesus Christ. There is not one, not even the worst human being who can ever fail to receive the grace of Jesus Christ if there is repentance and faith. In Jesus Christ, Keller writes, 
prostitute and king, male and female, Jew and Gentile, one race and another race, moral and immoral, all sit down as equals, equally sinful and lost, equally accepted and loved. This morning, this season of Christ's birth, where, where we remember the birth of Christ, the coming of Christ, you may find yourself feeling like you're excluded, excluded because of your past, maybe excluded because of your pedigree, maybe excluded because of, I just don't know as much. I haven't been raised in the church. I've made these choices. I don't know. I just, I'm on the outside. And the message of the good news of Christ's coming is this, that, that you and I who are outsiders, all of us are outsiders can be brought near to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is the message that that we hold, and this is the message that we treasure. This is the message that we share, especially at this time of year, as the followers, the believers of Jesus Christ, that Christ came to a people, to a world full of sinners. There's a third thought that I want to leave us here with this morning, and that is, in his coming, Jesus came supernaturally. Jesus came supernaturally. Anyone here watch the, the television show Flea Market Flip? I know at least one person does. There's a couple. The one person I expected to watch didn't raise her hand. There we go. It's a little bit on the slow in the take there, honey. And, uh, and, and there's the flea market flippers. What they do is they'll go to a, a flea market up in New England somewhere, and they'll, they'll, they'll be given a flip list, and they'll go and they'll shop for something that, you know, we would probably say someone else's trash, and they'll turn it into treasure, and they go to the workshop, and they'll, and they'll, they'll work on their, they'll rehab, refurbish their, their piece of furniture or wall hanging or whatever, and then they'll go to another flea market in New York City, and they'll sell it. And oftentimes, the, the flippers will describe their project this way. They'll say, uh, we're going to add a splash of color to this uh, piece. We're going to add a splash of color. Well, verse 16 is that splash of color that, is, that adds vibrancy and life to the dark and dreary, bleak colors of human history. We read through the genealogy, we read those lists, and there's that cadence. And so-and-so fathered so-and-so. And verse 16, there's that startling contrast. History is being interrupted. Read it again. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, and Joseph, the father, oh, but that's not what it says, does it? No. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. We're reminded that the coming of Jesus was supernatural and that Jesus was uh, born of a virgin without a, the, without a human father. He came into this world untainted by sin so that he could be the savior of mankind. When the angel announced to Mary in the Gospel of Luke that she would be with child, 
she asked her question. She said, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered in Luke's gospel, verse 37, chapter 1, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. The the coming of Jesus reminds us that, that God is the one who specializes in the impossibilities of life. Now, I don't know what you're facing here this morning, but you may be facing insurmountable odds. You may be overwhelmed, pressed to your wit's end, but I want you to know this, that God is the one who specializes in the impossibilities. The announcement of Christ, his coming into this world was that of a supernatural manner. He came into the world born of a virgin so that he would be free from sin, so that he could do what no one else could do. One, take away our sins. Be our Savior. But the book of Hebrews applies this even further. I, I didn't put the verse in the, on the scripture, but just make a note of this reference, and let me encourage you to look up these verses here at another time. Hebrews chapter two, verses 16 through 18. Hebrews chapter two, verses 16 through 18. The writer of Hebrews says this, we also know that the Son did not come to help angels, that Jesus didn't leave heaven to come and help angels. He came here to help the descendants of Abraham, and you and I, who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ spiritually, you and I are now descendants of Abraham. Therefore, it was necessary for him, Jesus, to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters. What does that mean? Jesus had to be made like us. He had to be made human so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Why? What happens? Since he himself had gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we're being tested. You hear what the promise of Christ coming to us is? Is that not only did Jesus Christ come and is able to take away our sins, he's able to help us now in whatever testing we find ourselves in. The supernatural nature of Christ's birth. Which leads me to the final thought in these opening verses, and that is this. In his coming, Jesus came in God's time. In his coming, Jesus came in God's time. Verse 17. Verse 17 is a summary. 14 generations from Abraham to David. 14 generations from David to the Babylonian exile. 14 generations from Babylon to the birth of the coming of the Messiah. What is Matthew highlighting for us? That God is orchestrating all of history. We would say this. God is orchestrating all of his story to accomplish his purposes. The Apostle Paul picked this up in Galatians chapter 4 when the Holy Spirit led him to write these words. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And just in this simple reminder of three, uh, 14 subsequent generations of 14, we're reminded that the promise of the Messiah came slowly, but it came. God doesn't always work on our timetable. God doesn't operate according to our calendar. 
There may be things in our lives we think, man, God is painfully slow or he is deliberately late. You may even find yourself here imagining that, that God has forgotten you and has overlooked you. Uh, things may be happening in your world, in your life, on a personal level that seem to be so random, so um, out of control, chaotic, and yet the things that are happening in this world and in a particular way in your life are never outside of God's providential care. God is at work. He was at work in those 42 generations leading up to the birth, the coming of the Messiah. He was at work when Christ entered into this world. He's at work in 2020. And on a personal note, in the areas of your life that are out of control, God is at work. In the areas of your life that seem hopelessly impossible, God is at work. He's not far. He's not forgotten you. He's not suddenly forsaken us and forsaken this planet in 2020. He came. The promise is that he's coming again. And through his spirit, he is here. Emmanuel. God coming to us. Why is this good news? The coming of Christ in history is a real story, not fable, not fictional. It's what we put our faith in. The coming of Christ. Jesus came for people like you and me, sinners, flawed, forgotten, failures. Came supernaturally, able to do the impossible. He came to give new life. I think of this, the miraculous account of Jesus in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter five, where the four friends brought their friend who was, on a, who was a paralytic on a, on a stretcher. They couldn't get in to see Jesus and they tore a hole in the roof. They let him down and Jesus looks at him and, and, and there's this, this cripple, this layman, unable to walk, unable to move. And Jesus looks at him and he says, um, uh, your sins are forgiven you. And I wonder if the friends in the roof felt this tinge of disappointment. We didn't bring him for the sins. We brought him so he could walk. And the religious people there, man, they said, who is this guy saying he can forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. And, and Jesus says what? He says, you're correct. Only God can forgive sins. And so that you know that I have the authority to forgive sins, I say to you, rise up and walk. And so God does the impossible. He gives new life. And maybe you're here this morning and your great need this Christmas is not a gift under the present. Your, gift is the, your great need is the gift of Jesus Christ. And God is able to save you. And he's able to give you eternal life. He's able to forgive you. And the coming of Christ reminds us that God is at work at all times, in all ways, in this world, even today.